Hey everybody and welcome back to another episode of Wings for Breakfast, our Red Wings podcast here on The Athletic. I am Max Boltman, with me as always is Prashant Ayer. Prashant, are you getting ready for, uh, you, you ready for, are you ready for the draft, the long-awaited 2020 NHL draft? I uh, I still don't believe that it's actually going to happen until like we're we're finally there on the day of and and we're all getting excited and, and ready to be you know seeing who the wings are going to take next. But it just it's it's felt like something we've been building up to basically since last October once we saw what the Red Wings were going to look like. So uh, it kept us waiting for sure. I know it's certainly uh, the anticipation is at a boiling point. I mean we are uh, recording this. Probably a few days before you guys are all going to hear it. We're recording this uh, in September 23rd. Uh, we'll drop it probably about a week till draft day. So if there's like a big trade in the next like five days and uh, there's like another Red Wings pick we're supposed to be discussing here, uh, our apologies. But but it certainly does feel already like this. Ha- there has been ample time to analyze, overanalyze uh, every aspect of this draft. And it's going to be really interesting to watch it come to fruition. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree. And I think this is one of the most unique drafts uh, really in the history of the NHL draft, just given this basically six-month gap where a lot of these players haven't had an opportunity to play. Um, GMs have kind of gotten – and their scouting staffs have gotten a lesser look um, at these players in the sense that you didn't get to see them go through the CHL playoffs. You didn't see really the playoffs play out in the SHL and – in Liga, you didn't see the Memorial Cup, you didn't see you know the U18 tournament, and so so many things that uh, are often built into what scouts are looking for just didn't happen, and as a result, you know you've had a lot of time to overanalyze uh, a lot of tape, and I think quite honestly, I've enjoyed just seeing people you know vacillate back and forth over uh, oh this player should go here now I think two months later they should go somewhere else and you haven't had any difference in game tape. So uh, really interesting draft just to see how much you basically, you know, galaxy brain this draft. I'm curious if it's going to prove to be more of a hindrance or more of a help. And I'm sure it'll be different in different cases. I mean, obviously there's going to be cases where someone's going to talk themselves into someone um, or or talk themselves out of someone because they're overly nitpicking. But there's also the chance that, you know, just more time allows you more looks at every single one of these guys to the point you could not have gotten in in any world on the normal draft calendar. Um, I I do wonder if, I mean, I'm sure there's going to be hindrances, but I wonder if it doesn't help some teams too. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's the best test that we're going to get here is this is the quintessential ultimate test of how good can you scout, right? I mean, you haven't had to watch a game in six months uh, you know, until the, the recent restart here for the SHL. So in six months of downtime, how many additional players did your staff get to that you wouldn't have gotten to in years past? And how much more tape did you get to watch of the players that you've got on your board? And so to me, this is basically the best test of scouting here. And, and I kind of want to see, uh, you know, five years from now, when we go to look back on this draft and say, okay, this player was a steal here, this player was kind of a reach here, how much more accurate were we uh, this year because of that extra six months? And and I think it's it's kind of goes both ways, right? You could say that this draft is going to be a lot better from an NHL team standpoint because they had more time, or you may fall kind of on the side where I fall in that you don't have enough information at baseline. And even if I gave you a six extra months, you're still not going to be able to glean whether or not a player is going to be, 
you know, an elite level player outside of those top 15 or 20 picks, because simply put, you, there's just not enough information there. People are going to develop differently. So that's kind of where I fall. But I, I completely see the point that if you give an extra six months, you're going to get to more players and, and potentially get more time to review some game tape on the guys you already had on your board. Now, one of the most interesting wrinkles of, of that lengthening of the process is the fact that, you know, some seasons in Europe have already started. Russia obviously started and Yaroslav Askarov is off to a really strong start. And then in Sweden, one of the players who we've been talking about in conversation for this fourth overall pick really the entire year because he was so good uh, in his draft minus one season is Lucas Raymond, who was off to a really good preseason and then had a goal in, in his SHL opener. Um, he's he's played one regular season SHL game. He's going to get three more before draft day. I wrote about this a little bit uh, this week on The Athletic. I'm curious, what do you, how much do you think a team should care about what Lucas Raymond does both in those – Five, five. I think it was five preseason games, actually. And then now these four regular season SHL games. I think a large part of how much you care uh, should depend on what role and really how many minutes he gets uh, in these games. Because I think that was, you know, the biggest lament for a lot of people last year was when you want to see a Frolunda game uh, to scout Lucas Raymond, the guy played maybe nine minutes a night. Uh, just under 10 minutes was his season average. And so... You didn't get a lot of looks at him, and it was very difficult to see him string together, you know, successful shifts or, you know, a lot of extra kind of nuanced time. And so now in this first part of the season uh, for his now draft year, if you will, um, you kind of want to see if he gets a bigger role and then how does he perform in that bigger role with kind of more expectations uh, you know, the first game wasn't really much of an indication. I think he played a shade under 13 minutes. Uh, but, yeah, so he, you know, he had a solid game, but again, not a ton of ice time. And I don't necessarily expect him to get 21 minutes of ice time like some of his teammates did uh, in, in that game. But, you know, that being said, if he gets a good three more games in and he averages 15, 16 minutes a night and performs well – you know, that's uh, that's a lot. That's a larger impact on his overall body of work, given that he was only averaging about nine, nine and a half minutes last season. Um, and that kind of weighs a little bit more. But if you're getting more of these nine, 10, 11 minute games where he's not really able to string a lot of stuff together, you're really just evaluating tools like you were last year. And it should just be, you know, additional information that goes into the bucket. But it's a nice uh, opportunity for scouts who may not have gotten to see a lot of them last year. Yeah, when I wrote the article, the main kind of pushback I've gotten, and, and really, I, I think this is frankly in line with what I wrote, but um, the sample size is obviously very small. I think there's a lot of uh, nervousness out there that sample size is going to really exert undue influence on this pick. And I think it's a fair concern because you know you don't want a team to ignore new information. You, you certainly would not want a, a GM or a director of amateur scouting who just pretends like these games aren't happening because you want every bit of information you can possibly have when you're making a decision this important. At the same time, it, it is sort of asymmetrical, the, the input that you're going to get here on Lucas Raymond. He's going to show you something on tape, and it's going to be the result of six months of hard work from the summer. You're not going to see that out of Cole Perfetti. You're not going to see that out of Jamie Drysdale, Marco Rossi, Jake Sanderson. You are going to see it out of Alexander Holtz, who's also in the Swedish league. Um, but many of those candidates for that spot, it's going to be just kind of a dash, an incomplete in, in what you get on the on the 2020 side input. So I think people are really worried about 
about the small sample size there, and I think it's fair, and I think it shows that uh, there's some good statistically-minded analytical thinkers out there listening, but at the same time, you do want to know, like like if you could choose on draft day in any normal year to know what the player was going to look like four months from now, you'd take that, right? I mean, in in June of a normal year, if if I could give you a little crystal ball and say, I can't tell you how his whole career plays out, but I can show you what he's going to look like after this summer, would you take it? Yeah, I mean, you absolutely would. I mean, I almost kind of liken it back to the Dallas Cowboys game the past weekend where, you know, Mike McCarthy goes for two and he kind of outlines the strategy that you need to know as early as possible, you know, what I need out of this drive and what I need out of the next drive. And it's the same concept here with the prospect and that, you know, hey, if I if I have the opportunity to know what they look like after an offseason, how much work they put in, how did they grow for some of these prospects, right? You know, how much weight did they put on? How did their frame fill out? I mean, that's really important stuff. Uh, to be able to pick up on a prospect. And then, you know, going back to the sample size argument, you know, I said he, Lucas Raymond played about, I think it was like 950 last year, somewhere around that range. And he played 33 games in the SHL. So, you know, for math's sake, let's make that 330 minutes. If you give him 15 minutes a night in the next three games and then add that to the 13 minutes he already had, that's almost 20% of what you saw last year, right? So that's kind of to my point. It's, it's four games, but don't think of it as games. Look, think of it as minutes. And if the guy gets a bigger run with more a bigger role, you all of a sudden now have a sample size that's you know 20% greater than what you had you know last year. And so I think that is actually an impactful sample size, even though it's against a singular opponent in, in each of these games. So ultimately, I think there's a lot of information you can glean from here, but you know some of it is just physically how did the player progress? But also, you know, given an offseason, how much work do they put in? And then in Raymond's case, how much better does he look in more ice time? And even if you want to knock uh, the preseason down, like let's say you only want to give it 50% weighting, you know, that's five more games where if it's if it's 14 minutes a night or whatever, you can add those minutes in, even if you only want to take half of them. So I do think it matters. And I think, you know, if, if you want to call that analogous to a, to a tournament or something, I mean... Um, it is different playing like best on best in your age group and, and even playing preseason because you know the intensity is not going to be there. But um, I think it's maybe a little more of a, of a sample than people are giving it credit for, even though it's still small. Um, and like you said, ultimately, a lot of it is about, you know, the ways that they grew. You're not just going to look at it and say, what's his points per game? But at the same time, if he's got like six points in four games, you, you kind of want to know that in the SHL, 1.5 points per game, even in just four games is really, really big production from an 18 year old. I'm not saying he's going to do that, but he did have six and five in the preseason. Um, I, I think it's interesting. So I, I will go through real quick and tell, cause I talked to Roger Ronberg, uh, who's the, the coach at for Lunda um, this week, actually. And, and he talked a little bit about Lucas and where he's grown. He, he did say he felt like he prepared a lot to be stronger and faster and even more skill work. But the thing that stood out to me was I'll, I'll read you the quote here. He said, I think he was a little bit too much on the outside last year and the years before that. He was leaning to his strength as a passer, and he is skilled with the puck, and he can really put his line mates in prime positionings too. But I want him to attack more and be more greedy to find scoring opportunities by himself. So I think that's the big improvement this year, that he's more focused on attacking the net when he's over the puck. That stands out to me because in Raymond's preseason, it was four goals and two assists in those five games. And Raymond, I think, gets more of a uh, reputation as a playmaker, but it's important to remember this guy has some score in him. I mean, going into into the last season, he was coming off a hat trick in the gold medal game of the World U18 Championship against Yaroslav Oskarov. So this is a guy who can score goals. 
Yeah, I mean, and that's exactly it is is for this guy who, you know, to the perimeters, uh, kind of the perimeter play aspect, you know, he's 5'10", 183 pounds, I think is what he's listed at as on elite prospects. And so, again, six months later, you know, these 18-year-old kids still grow. And does he mature a little bit more physically? Is he a little bit more willing to get to the middle of the ice because he's put on X amount of muscle? And you want to know that. You want to see how that develops. So, and ultimately, if you had drafted him, this is what his, you know, post-draft, uh, you know, season looks like. And so, again, I think there's a lot of extra information here. I think people... Uh, you know, I think there's a balance, right? You don't want to say, okay, this should make or break my decision to take Lucas Raymond. But I do think if he was on your board, this would either help strengthen or potentially weaken um, an argument just because he played so little last year. So I do think, you know, there's a lot you can get out of these four games plus the preseason, uh, you know, for him to make your final decisions come, uh, come draft night. If I'm a scout who loved Lucas Raymond coming into last year off of the strength of his play in club play, off of the strength of his world championships, really like the skill set. If I was a scout like that who was left feeling a bit confused and nervous about using a high pick on him because of how little run he got with the senior team last year, this isn't going to make my decision, but it is going to help fill in a lot of that gap. Like it, it really is going to just because it's like, okay, now I'm seeing maybe not in person. I don't even know if they can in person right now, but you are seeing at least on video, some of the stuff that you were hoping to see last year, probably if, if you really liked him coming in that you just didn't get the chance to. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so, you know, again, we don't know. I don't have a lot of insight into how some of these scouting departments work in terms of the number of games they even went to go see him, you know, for a typical scouting department. But now if you're getting four more games where you can sit on your couch and, and literally watch the game, I mean, I don't know how that's not valuable uh, information. And so I think that there's a lot to, to take away from here. And I think the teams towards the top of the draft, maybe the top six or seven teams are going to have a lot to take in from, uh, you know, Raymond Stark. I do ultimately wonder uh, what it's going to mean for the guys who aren't playing and, and what it means there, because I, I'm sure if I'm Cole Perfetti, I want to show my progress as well, and I'm just not going to get that chance. So that's very interesting to me. But the other side of this whole conversation that I want to talk about is it, this will go more toward the Red Wings pick than, than to you know whoever it may be than just specifically to Lucas Raymond. But I want to talk a little bit about positional value at that draft spot. And you know the Red Wings so far, I believe they've had uh, three top 10 picks in their rebuild. First, obviously, was Michael Rasmussen in 2017. Then it was Philip Zadina in 2018. Last year, it was Moritz Seider. Um, and that's just top 10 picks, right? Joe Valeno was another first-round pick, but he was at 30. I wonder, that's one center, one winger, one D. Uh, and in the last two, the, the higher the, the higher of the two picks at number six overall were a winger and a D. How much do you think they should care about the the value of the position? Obviously, everyone wants the best player available, but in your mind, does the, uh, the value of, of positions in the NHL kind of affect who the best player available is? I think that's a really challenging question to answer because I think, you know, there's this historical, um, you know, concept where maybe the center is a little bit more valuable, kind of dependent on their uh, defensive prowess, their defensive responsibilities, things along those lines. I think, you know, one of, one of my hypotheses with all of that is positional value, at least for forwards, is becoming maybe a little less important as we progress, given 
you're having a lot of teams kind of mix up their defensive zone coverages, their kind of forechecking pressures, where the center isn't traditionally always planted in the middle of the ice. You have people moving, you know, cutting across angles, cutting across sides of the ice. Uh, and I think as you get more and more pushed to this positionless hockey, if you will, uh, I do think you can have forwards um, that can provide incredible defensive value that don't necessarily have to be centers uh, in that respect. You know, guys like Mark Stone really jump out in my mind. Brad Marchand dry, uh, jumps out in my mind. Uh, wingers who are able to have that kind of defensive impact uh, on the game. And I think it's a little bit of their ability to be a rover uh, to a certain extent on the ice. So to me, I think positional importance is maybe dwindling. I think it's still important right now, at least when it comes to the center versus winger co- um, conversation. Uh, but really, you know, if you kind of bring this back to Detroit, I think the the number one answer here is they need talent across the board. I think in Corey Pronman's article the other day, where he talks about kind of what organizations need, his answer for Detroit was simply talent. So you know, at the end of the day, you just kind of make sure you add a talented player in this roster. And I don't know that positional value should be so important. So the reason that I've been thinking about this so much it has to do with the Winnipeg Jets, who are a team who has used uh, some really high picks on wingers in recent years and hit on those players. They got Nikolai Ehlers. They got Patrick Laine with the second overall pick. Both of those guys are awesome players. I think top line wingers, I think, for both of them. Patrick Line has got a 40 goal season. He would have had his fourth 30 goal season this year. Uh, at the age of 22, he, he's uh, only just recently turned 22. Uh, basically, exactly everything you would want picking in the top five out of a winger. And yet, both of those two players I just named having been top 10 picks are rumored to be on the trade block because the Jets still are looking for centers and defensemen. And that makes me wonder if you, if you get two guys that hit to the level that these two guys have hit as prospects on the wing, I don't think you could ask for a whole lot more from the player you're going to draft at number four really than either of these guys. Cause I think Ehlers is a great player and yet they're open to trading him for for center and D help. That just kind of makes me wonder if 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 the positional value um, is maybe more pronounced than I had been giving it credit for just previously. Yeah, I mean, I think you could really take different case studies all the way across. I mean, for example, you know, let's uh, let's talk about the Tampa Bay Lightning, right? A team that the Red Wings are very much familiar with over the playoff history, and they're having another outstanding season this year. Um, They may have won the Stanley Cup by the time this uh, airs, but at this point, they're in the Stanley Cup Finals. You look back at their draft history uh, and the players that they took in 2011, 12, 13, and 14 aren't even on their roster in the first round. All of their first round picks are not on their roster, aside from Vasilevsky, who was their second first round pick, and that was a a pick the Wings dealt to them. But otherwise, Nemestnikov, Kuku, Druin, D'Angelo, all gone, all moved because they needed something else. So I, I still think you take the best player available because if the player ultimately proves themselves valuable, you can deal from a position of strength to acquire other things that you need. So Winnipeg isn't going to have to sell line A for cheap. They're not going to have to sell them for pennies on the dollar. They're going to be able to sell them and get them at the value that they want. You know, they were able, you look at the Lightning, they moved Jonathan Druin and are able to get, you know, Mikhail Sergachev. They're able to move Tony D'Angelo and get Ryan McDonough. It's, it's being able to make the moves that you want to make uh, down the road by stockpiling the best available talent. And 
and it'll come when you need it to come. So I think you could really go through the NHL and kind of nitpick uh, how you want, and you'll find kind of case studies that fall on both sides. I think at the end of the day, what it really tells you is you can you can deal out of best players available, but if you always draft by position and you don't hit on the position like Winnipeg did, then you're still in a problem, but now you don't really have assets to fix it. Well, I'm not talking about drafting by position so much as factoring position into your board. Like I'm not saying look at your sheet and say who's our number one center, who's our number one D, take that guy. But I'm saying like as you're evaluating a prospect, like, you know, there's a lot of components that go into making a draft board. I guess part of me just wonders if if the waiting for and, and maybe this is part of the reason that you see kind of defensemen go a little higher than people are expecting, it seems like in, in some years. Um it, it, is there a value adjustment there that maybe from the outside you don't make, but internally could could make sense. Yeah, I mean I, I think you certainly could. I think you could certainly adjust your you know plan based on that. But I, I have a hard time doing that because again, a lot of these players, you're talking about a timeline of two to three years. You can think about how quickly some of these rosters are turning over and what was a need this year is no longer a need the following year. Um, and so I think that's the challenge in kind of drafting and building that in uh, to your your needs assessment. Like to me, I wouldn't come into a consideration. And if I had two players that I felt were roughly equivalent, I still don't know that I would use positional kind of need, if you will, at the current time to, to be the thing that breaks that tie. I would, again, try and find you know, something else that goes into that because I think positional need is a very fluid state and what you need one year is not what you need the next year. And given oh, yeah, the I'm not talking about need. Yeah, I, I just I, mean like the centers in D are more valuable even if you already have two centers in 5D. I don't, okay. I don't know that I agree with that. Okay. I, don't, so that, I guess that's what I'm getting at. Like the whole positional need comes from this implicit weighting that centers in D are more valuable. But I think the value of a center over a winger is diminishing as you have more of these teams coming up with complex defensive zone coverages – the ability to flex across the ice, uh, the ability for you know your wingers to step in and take faceoffs. I think a lot of that older traditional stay in your lane, uh, one side of the ice kind of coverage is is going to go away as you have more teams adopting a positionalist style. And so I don't think that that's going to be valuable down the road. And then same thing with the defensemen. If you look at the guys that can skate, I mean Miro Heiskanen can fly. Kale McCarr can fly. Quinn Hughes can fly. These guys all have forward-level skills that allow them to actually rotate up and rotate back. So to me, I think you're almost going towards more of a homogenous equivalent weighting of player value. Sure, you have more forward spots than D spots, and that by nature makes the D player more scarce, and thereby, if you're able to get a good one, a more valuable spot to have. But at the same time, I think at the end of the day, you just need talent across the roster, and it doesn't really matter where it is. I don't know. I, I don't know if I can get there because I, I think about if I'm a GM and I need to acquire a top six or even top line winger, I can get it done by the end of the business day. Like I can pick up the phone and there's you know any number of, of teams that will trade you that. You're going to have to give something really good up. But if I do that with a center or a defenseman, I mean, Minnesota has been trying to do it for a long time and they have not found that center. And, you know, I... I know what you're saying. It comes down probably to scarcity, maybe more than intrinsic value. And the scarcity obviously does vary team to team. 
But if you're going through these drafts, and let's say the Red Wings, I mean, I, I feel comfortable saying the Red Wings are going to have another top 10 pick next year. Let's say they go through this thing and the best center they've drafted is Michael Rasmussen in the top 10 in their rebuild. That, I mean, to yeah. me, that strikes me as potential big red flag for where this rebuild is going to end up. That does. But let's say you go through, you draft Morris Satter, you draft Jamie Drysdale, you draft Owen Power. One of those guys is now expendable and potentially able to be flipped for some guy that can slot in as a second line center, right? Yeah, second line center. I mean, I don't know. Like, I want the if if I'm picking top five and top ten consistently, and I don't come out of that with with a number one center, I'm five years. If I don't come out of that with a number one center, I really would be feeling like I missed my chance. I, I mean. Know. Yeah, that's the thing, though, right, is you're not necessarily limited to the first-round pick, right? Because the first-round pick, maybe you have the most confidence in what they're going to become. But I think ultimately what really separates these elite teams is when you have the guys that you're taking in the later rounds becoming those players that were that are far that's greater true. than what they were projected to be, right? I mean, you look at Tampa. I told you about all their first-round picks, but I didn't tell you about Nikita Kucherov in the second round, you know, who, who completely changed the game for them. And or Braden Point. In the third round in 2014, I mean, those are guys that they took, and they became far greater than the first-round picks that were taken there, and that ultimately allows you to do that. So I think at the end of the day, in the pick, in the player you have the most confidence in at the top of the round, positional value shouldn't matter because I feel like you're going to look at it and just say, this is my best shot at adding talent to my roster. Afterwards, it's a little bit more of a dart pick, but if one of those you know darts lands on the bullseye, then you're, you're in great shape. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human in customer service anytime. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. All right. Um, yeah, no, I, I think Prashanth makes some good points about positional value there, and I'm uh, I am pretty comfortable with, with that, especially when you put it that way in the, in the Tampa roster. Um, it, it, that's some pretty good context for, for it. Ultimately, the positional need, uh, you, can, you can come to regret it if things don't go well, but if you're doing your job very well, um, you, know, you, you can find talent in a lot of places, and you, you probably shouldn't as a GM operate like you're always going to to find those guys. But I also 
it'd, it'd be a little bit alarming if I was a GM and I had no confidence in my ability to add talent anywhere but the top 10 of the draft. So I, I definitely can uh, can get on board with that from that perspective. Um, let's get into kind of our, our last minute thoughts and, uh, and I guess predictions. What do you think is going to go down uh, on October 6th and 7th? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's so hard to say because, uh, you really don't know how the top three are going to play out. I mean, I think most of us feel reasonably confident that it's going to go, you know, Lafreniere and Byfield and Stutzla. But again, with all of this kind of galaxy braining that's going on, now you're having reports that, uh, you know, maybe Ottawa would jump up and take Drysdale at three to prevent the wings from doing that. And then now that means one of Byfield or Stutzla is there at, uh, for to me, I think it plays out the way we all think it's going to play out, and with a uh, Lafreniere then Byfield then Stutzla going one two three, and so in that situation, I think if you're the Red Wings at four, I I have a hard time seeing them go against Cole Perfetti, and I think that'll probably be the pick. I think you know they may wait that that uh, center kind of positioning need in there a little bit more, um, and again, you know with with Perfetti being re- reasonably close. Um, and kind of in an organization already that, uh, you know, the wings are connected with. I think it's a potential uh, home run pick for them. So that's kind of what I see happening in the first round, at least at fourth overall. I agree. I think I do think it'll be Perfetti, and I do think that the potential upside for him to be a center um, is is going to be important, uh, not necessarily to them, but in certainly in how I view the pick. Uh, no matter what happens, now they could they could draft him, and we could ask Steve Eiserman an hour after the draft. You know, do you view him as a center or wing? And he could say wing, and and that would be that. But um, you know, the fact that Perfetti has played center, I think, gives him that little extra shot to to really add a lot of value to his profile. Um, but I, I'm curious to see what happens too, and, I, and I'm really curious to see what happens trade wise between right now and the end of October 7th, because it just feels like the kind of off season that's going to be ripe for for that kind of stuff. Um, my my main prediction I'll make though is that uh, I think it's going to be Jake Sanderson and not Jamie Drysdale, who's the first defenseman off the board. Just kind of a gut feeling, and I will double down on that and say that will prove to be. The right call. I I did not know enough about Jake Sanderson when this pause hit and we were talking about him, but in the course of reporting out my series on the number four pick and in, in watching the the admittedly limited video that I have watched, I would have been very happy to see um, him at the U18s in Plymouth had they happened. I just kind of have this feeling that Jake Sanderson's going to be a really strong player, and you know maybe not necessarily the it doesn't necessarily matter so much for the Red Wings, um, but it could. But I I just you know, left that process thinking Sanderson has a has a very good case to be the best defenseman in this draft. Yeah, that's fair. Um, you know, I think a lot of people maybe uh, feel a little bit more comfortable with Drysdale because it's more abundantly obvious by his point totals, yeah. right? Uh, you, you see that it shows up. It's easier to say that Jamie Drysdale is a you know uh, is a good defenseman, and and same thing. You know, analytically, when you've looked back at defenseman the kind of one of the things that maybe suggests future success is the ability to score at a high level in the junior leagues and so that's kind of why a little bit more apples have been in you know Drysdale's bucket but that being said I wouldn't dispute uh, Sanderson being the best defenseman out of this I think I've you know largely not said a lot of positive things about Jake Sanderson but that doesn't necessarily reflect Sanderson being a bad player uh, what that does reflect is my inability to analytically assess and project defensemen. Uh, I think it's one of the most difficult things to do from the draft level. You find that even at the NHL level, we still don't 
do a good job of defining defense and really projecting and analyzing defensemen uh, largely. That's why Drew Doughty gets Norris Trophy votes uh, this season, and and that's what happens. So, but I think it's even tougher at the uh, junior level to do so, and that's a large part of the reason why I refrain from from saying a lot of nice things about defensemen is because <laughs> it's so hard to do that. Uh, but that being said, I wouldn't be mad at the Sanderson pick if that's who's there at four. I wouldn't be mad really at any number of five or six players. I think the only guy I'd steer clear of at four would be Yaroslav Askarov, and and you all are abundantly familiar with why I, I say that with goalies. But I think really a goalie would be the only thing that's incorrect or, or not ideal at fourth overall. I think there's a number of other players that are good fits at four. Uh, you've kind of refined your goalie methodology a bit, so I want to go there in a second. But I just want to read this from Mitch Brown on, on EP Rinkside earlier this week, which is Sanderson scored in the 95th percentile among junior defenders and expected primary points per 60, which is expected goals and expected primary assists. That's pretty interesting. Now, I assume that just means in the games Mitch tracked, and I don't know if that's all of them, but that's kind of counter to the narrative about him, and and I think it does feed into some of the things you see in, in his game that maybe it's not flashy offense, but there is there is something to it. Yeah, and, th- and that's the thing, and that's what's so difficult to project about defensemen is because if they're not on loaded teams, they don't often pick up a lot of those assists, and not, and not many defensemen are kind of flashy goal scorers, and so... You know, if you don't have those assist totals to show up because you're not necessarily playing on a strong team, and we know this uh, NTDP team is not as strong as the team last year, uh, you just don't have the same goal scoring output, and therefore your defensemen don't look as good. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I agree with you. I don't think he would be a bad pick at four. I, you know, I'm, I'm not, you know, necessarily expecting that, but it, it certainly could happen. I don't think it would be a bad pick uh, for the Red Wings. But uh, I did want to get into that goaltender thing. Are you, uh, are you deep enough into your kind of goalie research that you want to talk about it on here? Or you want to just wait and do that for another time? No, let's uh, let's let fly because you know I got to defend why I'm saying Askarov shouldn't be yeah. the pick as he's named KHL Player of the yeah. Week, right? So, you know, I think largely when you look at all of the the different positions in the NHL, obviously you have the most ability to incorporate forwards into your organization. You've got twelve forward spots. You've got six defensemen, seven if you're John Cooper, but you only have two goalies. And so I think a lot of what you see happen is teams, number one, don't do a great job of evaluating goalies at lower levels. I think it's very difficult to do. Um, It's very difficult by the eye test alone, really, to weight um, how good a goalie is when they're playing on a very strong team. I mean, if you look at the Ottawa 67s this year, you know, Marco Rossi's team that was just absolutely dominant. It's very hard to evaluate a goaltender playing on that team because the quality of shot they're seeing is just not there. And and analytically, it becomes even tougher because only a couple of leagues even offer you uh, shot locations to try and even build an expected goals model. So it becomes very difficult to get any sort of impression on how good a goaltender is playing besides simple technique. And again, Uh, You know, you look at some of these elite goaltenders that have been able to reform their technique and refine their technique with different goalie coaches. What may be a bad habit right now may be something that could be refined by the right goalie coach in your system. And so ultimately, I think what that leads to is a lot of teams just not knowing how to evaluate goalies. Now, Askarov, what he's doing is special. There's not there's no one who's done what he's doing and now getting to the KHL. And not only that, uh, kind of excelling at the KHL level. That's kind of an outlier. We haven't seen that before. And that kind of screams that he's probably got all the tools and the pieces there as well. 
However, we have seen goalies kind of excel in the past in other leagues. You know, a name that comes to mind is Rick DiPietro, you know, who ultimately ended up going first overall, you know, back in his draft. And, and again, wasn't able to put the pieces together, wasn't able to kind of maintain that. So I think kind of piece or problem number one is just inability to account for team strength, league strength, shot location, shot quality, all at the junior level makes evaluating the goalie very difficult. The second piece is that within the organization, now that you've drafted them, I think a lot of teams, again, struggle with that same analysis of how do I progress my goaltender? If you think about forwards, you think about defensemen, oftentimes if a player is going to make the NHL, you know, they're making it within two, three years, uh, sometimes four or five at the latest. Goalies, on average, don't make the NHL until year four, year five, year six. Some goalies even not making it until seven, eight years after their draft. I mean, you look at a guy like Henrik Lundqvist, and he's coming in five years after he's drafted. And so it's it's fascinating to see that kind of struggle with how do I evaluate the goaltender at levels that are not the NHL level? And I think it leads to kind of poor initial evaluation. You, uh, a great example of this is Dustin Wolf, who's a seventh-round pick, and he was an absolute stud this past year, but there's no way he should have gone in the seventh round. And largely, I think he was dismissed because his height was under six foot. You look at Anton Hudobin, who's in the NHL uh, Stanley Cup Finals right now, just absolutely balling out. He's a seventh round pick that's been passed around Carolina, Boston, and a handful of teams. Uh, and so you then finally are figuring out how to progress these goalies. They come in a lot later. You don't have as many positions available. And I think by the time you bring them to the NHL level, they're actually past their quote-unquote prime. You know, you look at the forward, you look at the defensemen, we think their primes are mostly around age 23, 24, 25, 26, kind of right in that bubble. But if goalies aren't hitting the NHL level until 25, 26, uh, or, you know, in some cases even later than that, depending on who the goalie is, I think you miss a lot of their athletic prime and I think you miss a lot of their ability to really be an excellent goaltender at a younger age. I'm not saying everybody can be Carter Hart. I'm not saying everybody can be Carey Price uh, and come in at such a young age. But I think the challenge is teams just don't know how to get their goalie to the NHL at a fast enough rate to maximize the value they get from that goalie. Uh, and so what would end up happening is if you take Askarov and you wait two, three years before you bring him over, and then now you get three years of Askarov kind of on his entry-level contract. And if he's that good, then you end up shelling out a big, big money deal. And that's the problem is now all of a sudden you lose that value, you tie up a lot of money in one spot, and it just doesn't become economical anymore. And so the moral of the story is there's just a huge problem in the way we evaluate goalies outside the NHL level, and it results in the wrong ones being drafted and not being progressed fast enough. And by the time they're hitting the NHL, I think they're past their prime from an athletic standpoint. I love your point about the cost if things go right. Because to me, that's kind of one of the paradoxes of this, is that if you get a goalie who is worth, who proves to be worth the number four overall pick, in order for them to be that, they're going to be so, they're going to have to be so good that you're almost going to have to pay them $10 million a year. And that's fine. You should want a $10 million a year player, or at least a player with $10 million a year potential at fourth overall. But in order, because of the kind of the, what that means, dedicating that much money to, to your goaltending position, the only way I would really be able to talk myself into considering that is if I thought he was the only player who had $10 million, you know, trophy winning, MVP winning 
potential at that spot. And this year, I do not think that is the case or really anywhere close to the case. Yeah, I completely agree. But I do think he could be great. I certainly think he could be that good. But I don't think he's the only player who could be that good. And the downside of him being that good is actually kind of real. Yeah, and and here's the thing, right? It goes goes back to a question you got asked, uh, or I think you put in your mailbag, about if you knew that he was Gary Price, would you draft him? And I think it all depends on how quickly are you willing to bring him over. Because, you know, I'll go, I'll, I'll kind of punt it back to Henrik Lundqvist. So Lundqvist is drafted seventh round in 2000, right? This is the 205th pick in 2000. He doesn't make his NHL debut until the 05 06 season. And in that season, he saves 30 goals above average. Like this guy just completely hits the NHL level and crushes it. But in that 05 06 and 06 07, which is his entry level contract, you're paying him $817,000. That was your chance to win with him, right? So that's where your window needed to line up. Because then in 07, 08, his cap hit goes up to 8.5% of the cap. And then by 08, 09, you're giving him a cap hit that's 14% of your salary cap for one player at one position. And so that completely you know, changes everything because while it's sometimes okay to commit 14% of your salary cap to one position – if it's Connor McDavid, remember that the goaltender doesn't play 82 games, right? You're not even getting 82 games out of it. And now you're actually moving into a model where a lot of goalies are playing 55 games. And so now you're tying up 14% of your cap and a player playing 55 games, and you still have to win 30 games without their services. So basically, even if it goes right, if you don't maximize those early years and get them at their best on their entry-level contract in your cup window – you're not going to get the best out of them from a bang for your buck perspective. I think that's well well argued. I'm sure it'll draw the the same uh, contentious response it always does, but I I, I think it's a very good point. Um, all right, and then just to close on, I am sensing that this is a uh, stressed out fan base right now, and I understand it's this is the basically the day they've been building toward the decision. They've been uh, looking toward through a very miserable, very hard season. I have a lot of empathy for that. I cannot imagine, uh, especially at, at, with the rise of Quinn Hughes, kind of the, the pressure everyone must be feeling to uh, to see the Red Wings get this one right and to see them hit a hit a home run of a player. So I kind of want to just open the floor here as, as we sign off. Do you have any kind of final words for Red Wings fans, whether they be calming, whether they be commiserating, anything that you want to... Uh, tell them before uh, before draft day arrives. I think the the number one advice is it it'll be fine. You know, whoever the wings yeah. draft at four, it's going to be fine. Uh, you know, the don't wring your hands about their second round picks because you know a lot of times these guys are throwing darts at a dartboard. You don't you don't have great confidence in them, and there's not a lot splitting one player from the next in that tier. So, you know, it's, it's going to be fine. Let it play out. Let's see how it all looks and, and see how some of these guys develop because there's simply just not a lot splitting, you know, some of those players at that point, and, and, and it'll all work out. I agree. I mean, whoever they draft at number four, barring a stunner of epic proportions, is going to be their number one prospect in their farm system. It's going to be a player who, um, who I think is, is going to have a very good case to be one of the best players in this draft. And I, I think that's true for really seven guys, probably. That includes Askarafi. So even, even if I don't necessarily think that that would be the right use of the pick, he absolutely has a chance to be one of the best players in this draft class. Oh, yeah, totally. Um, 
so uh, to me, you know, relax, try to enjoy it. Uh, we will be back with a podcast episode. Uh, I, I think that they moved the, the schedule. So now it's a Wednesday is the second day of the draft. Yeah. Wednesday is the second day. So we will be, you know, we'll, we'll be, we'll, we'll have a podcast to you guys shortly after to break things down, but just enjoy it as much as possible. Remember how much you looked forward to this day, uh, back when the losses were piling up and, and just try to enjoy the moment that you're, you're getting a prospect. It may not be at the number pick that you want. It may not even be of that tier of guys, the one that you've kind of set your heart on, uh, in the run up. but rest assured, you're going to get a really good prospect in this draft Enjoy the night and then uh, and then gear up for for 2021 draft watch, which is sure to be just as chaotic. And hey, a season's actually not even that far away now. We don't know exactly how far, of course, but uh, it's within shouting range. The free agency's right around the corner, so uh, things are, I would say, on the upswing for for the Red Wings fan base here, or at least they should be. So don't let that get too lost in uh, in the tension and the stress of draft night. That would be my uh, my parting shot. So we'll be back at you guys uh, after the draft, and then I think we should start getting more regular there pretty quick here. So we really appreciate everybody sticking with us through this re uh, through through this long pause, um, and and yeah, we will be getting more regular soon. So thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you then.